All right. Well, if you could turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible. Looks a lot like this. In the seats in front of you. And it's on page 879. Luke chapter 20. As we continue our series through this gospel. Luke talks about our certain salvation. And we are continuing in Luke chapter 20. Starting in verse 9. Luke 20. Verse 9, so turn the pages or access it in your app. Turn your phone on Do Not Disturb because the first NFL games just started. My iPad, by the way, is on airplane mode, just so everybody knows. Although I did hear a story recently about a guy who was watching an Alabama football game while he was conducting a wedding on his iPad. (laughs) Not a good idea. Not a good idea. All right, Luke chapter 20. We're going to read verses 9 through 26 to start. Then we'll pray and dive in. Luke 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Well, there's a lot in there for us, I believe, this morning. So let's pray and ask God to help us see it. Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you that your words uh, bring life. Um, They give us uh, sustenance. They give us uh, what we need to live on. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we thank you, Lord, for this feast you have prepared for us. We thank you for the other feast that is waiting for us in the, the gym after this. Lord, bless our study of your word and our fellowship afterwards. Give our brothers and sisters in the mountains a safe journey home today. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears, help us have ears to hear what you say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Well, I titled this morning's sermon, God and Country, uh, because both of these passages have something to do um, with the country or the nation of Israel at the time and God. And in fact, the second passage talks about taxes pretty uh, explicitly. So that, that seemed to fit what's going on here in this part of Luke. But I want to uh, just ask you a question this morning. Have you ever told a story to someone not because you wanted to tell the story, but because you wanted them very clearly to get the point of the story. Um, we have had to talk about the boy who cried wolf several times in our home, that story. Um, maybe you've had to tell one of Aesop's fables. Uh, maybe it's a, a mother goose nursery rhyme to try to teach somebody something or remind someone of something. Maybe you revisited a popular book or a movie to try to remind someone of a lesson. You point the lesson out or the principle that's uh, in there, and then possibly forcefully try to show how it is directly relevant to whatever is going on in that person's life right now. Have you ever done that? Kind of, you kind of go past the just straight up, I'm going to tell you how it is. I'm going to tell you a story to show you what you're doing. Um, this is what Jesus does in today's passage. Uh, we, we are familiar, many of us, with Jesus' parables, um, but specifically in this parable, Jesus tells this parable um, with, a, I think, a different level of intensity because of the surroundings, because of the context, because of Passover, because of his followers' um, excitement that this might be the Messiah, because of his enemies' uh, growing uh, desire to kill him. And he tells this story in order that he might teach a lesson to the people that are hearing. And we, 2,000 years later, get the benefits of also learning the lessons that Jesus taught then. So if you remember, last week, Pastor Ron uh, walked us to the end of Luke 19 and into the first eight verses of Luke chapter 20. And Jesus and his disciples have finally arrived in Jerusalem, basically from the end of chapter 9 all the way through to the end of chapter 19. It has been Jesus journeying closer and closer to Jerusalem. He tells his disciples that he's going to be turned over to the, the authorities. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again. They have not had ears to hear that. When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he was uh, uh, accepted by crowds that were chanting and singing and palm branches and clothes. Uh, the feeling in the air just must have been pulsing with hope and excitement. At Passover, tens of thousands of Jews came from all over the world to descend on Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And yet in the midst of all those, Jesus is, is grieved over the rebellious nature of the people and the religious leaders. He weeps openly. They challenge his authority, and we saw last week in verses 1 through 8 that they, they want to know this, this uneducated, backwoods Galilean. What, where does his authority come from? And so they come to Jesus with a frontal assault, challenging his authority. Jesus asks them a question that they are unable to answer, and so Jesus says, I won't answer your question either. And that's where we left it last week. And so Jesus wouldn't answer their question about where his authority came from. Or, or would he? Uh, because I think that this parable that we get to look at today is actually Jesus' answer to the question of where his authority comes from. But it is not a direct answer. Again, Jesus is telling a story to try to get through to his hearers. Perhaps that is what God has done for us in giving us one big story 
so that we might see our place in it, see how God has prepared us for our place in the last days in this very story, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, the story of Jesus and his followers, uh, the story of uh, one who told his followers to go to the ends of the earth. And here we are in Garden Grove, California, miles and miles and miles away from Jerusalem. We are the ends of the earth. And we get to study God's word this morning. So grab your notes. Here we go. Uh, Point number one, Jesus tells a prophetic parable to three things, assert his authority, predict his death, and warn his hearers. Jesus tells a prophetic parable to assert his authority, predict his death, and warn his hearers. This is in the first passage, verses 9 through 18. And Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard. Um, And so uh, before we dive in, we need to kind of get the historical context. Um, I have driven up the central coast all my life to visit my family in Santa Maria. And over the decades, more and more and more and more vineyards have popped up along the 101. In fact, now they're just ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Um, I remember watching out the car window and seeing like the rows. You ever do that? You watch the rows of the vineyards out the window. No one does that? Okay. That's just me. Uh, oh, good. Someone else. All right. I'm not alone. Uh, that, that's, that's a, a really uh, different kind of vineyard than what would have been the case in Jesus' time. And there's some pictures that, that I have here that I'd like to show you. This is um, actually at the base of Lachish, uh, a city in southern Israel. Um, and this, these are the rows. Here are some uh, biblically <laughs> dressed up characters um, picking uh, the grapes. They gather grapes in, in a very similar fashion to this. And then when they had all of the grapes, when it's time to harvest them, they take them to a press. Uh, and in the press, they would put all the grapes in uh, a pit, and they'd actually uh, um, invite people to come and crush the grapes. Sometimes they'd even dance. Um, sometimes they would even have a little covering over so that you could grab onto the ropes and crush the grapes. And as you began to crush the grapes, the, the juice would rise, and it would flow down that little channel into vats where they could collect the grape juice and then begin to let it ferment and turn into wine. So this is, this is a, a very uh, normal, real thing that Jesus' followers would have automatically connected to. In fact, a lot of Jesus' followers probably had themselves or had family who worked at a vineyard like this um, for wealthy uh, Israelites, perhaps wealthy high priests, perhaps wealthy Sadducees and Pharisees um, who would rent out their vineyard. And so Jesus is, is using something that might be a little foreign to, to many of us, but he's using a, a word picture that is very, very familiar to uh, the people that are around him. A vineyard was just like something that everybody would know about. Um, and so when we see this, we've got to understand the historical context and understand uh, what's going on. Also, what's very interesting is Jesus is telling the story in the temple grounds. Pastor Ron showed us um, the, the picture of the, the temple and the courts and how big the football field's long court would have been. And Jesus is teaching in this context. And very nearby on Herod's temple, there was a massive, I couldn't find any artist's rendering of it, but there was a massive golden grape cluster um, that represented the nation of Israel right there at the temple. So who knows, maybe they could have even seen it from where they were standing. Maybe even Jesus pointed at this gigantic golden grape cluster. And what is Jesus referring to? 
Well, actually, this was not just something they knew from personal experience. Maybe they worked, maybe they saw one. But they also knew about the vineyard because throughout the Old Testament, God had referred to the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, as a vineyard. He used the picture of a vineyard to describe his people. And the most famous place is Isaiah chapter 5. And I'd like you to turn there really quick. Isaiah chapter 5 is a very well-known song about a vineyard. Now, that you can also find uh, some pretty significant portions of the Old Testament devoted to the vineyard. Psalm chapter 80 is another big one if you want to check that out this afternoon. Later on, Isaiah, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 19, Hosea 10. Israel is compared to a vineyard. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed, it out, hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that there rain no rain upon it. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Now, when we go back to Luke chapter 20, we're not making every single parallel between Isaiah 5, but that really gives us the context in which for hundreds of years, Israelites had grown up understanding, knowing, perhaps even singing that song from Isaiah 5, recognizing that they are like a vineyard. So when Jesus tells the story in Luke 20 about the vineyard, all of this is kind of just woven into the DNA of what it means to be an Israelite. So as Jesus tells this story, they are totally ready to hear it because this is just normal life. Look at verse 9. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. This was also normal. The people that could afford a vineyard were wealthy and they let it out to tenants who would rent from them and run the place. And oftentimes, these rich, wealthy people would spend time in Italy. They'd go away to Alexandria. They'd go on long trips. They'd leave. They'd live somewhere else. And if they had just planted a vineyard, really, usually it took about four years for there to be any kind of significant fruit anyway. So this is not something that you do quickly. This is something that takes time. So he goes to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. This is totally normal. This is expected. Hey, I've been waiting for a while. Send some. Give me some let, me, let me taste some of these grapes. Let me see how it's going at my vineyard. I want it to be fruitful. I want it to be profitable. And we see the word is that he sends a servant and throughout the Old Testament, the, the, the people of God receive messengers from God, the prophets, who in various places are called the servants of God in a very specific way. And so we're, we're to recognize here uh, some of the connections between the history of Israel, the vineyard, and what God has done over the years. He sends that servant, but what do they do? They beat him and send him away empty-handed. This is completely unacceptable. They don't own the vineyard. They're just tenants. And so 
the, the master sends another servant. But they beat him and treat him shamefully and send him away empty-handed. In verse 12, he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. What is going on here in verses 9 through 12? Well, God is, Jesus is telling the people about their, their need to listen to God's messengers. That's point A in your notes. To listen to God's messengers. He tells the history of Israel not listening to God's messengers in this story. In, in Jesus' time on earth, he uh, repeatedly would talk about persecution that his disciples should expect. And he would compare it to the persecution that the prophets had experienced under God's people for hundreds of years. The same thing they're doing to you, they did to the prophets. Uh, that's in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. That's throughout Jesus' teaching. And so we're to recognize here that what Jesus is doing is he's actually in the story telling the children of Israel the history of, Their history. Tell them their history. This is what happened. I want you to notice that we ought to listen intently when God's word is spoken. It it probably was very clear to them, and if it didn't become clear, it becomes clear in the next few verses, that this parable is about them and their relationship with God. God owns the vineyard. God planted the vineyard. And yet God's servants sent to the vineyard are beaten and sent away. They're not listening to their master. This is not merely some kind of passive, I forgot. This is a rebellious heart. I don't want to listen to your messengers. In fact, not only that, I'm going to beat them and send them back to you. Village, we we must listen when God speaks. And God has spoken in his word, and we are to listen to God's messengers. Another thing I want you to notice is in this parable, just notice God's patience that's told to us in the, the, the sending of another servant and another servant. Three servants get sent. And, and if, you, if you look at the history of the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years went by where God sent Elijah and Elisha and Hosea and Amos and all of these Old Testament prophets. He sent them to the people. And sometimes there was repentance But most of the time, there was hardness of heart. Think about God's patience. So don't don't think about God's patience in like, you're like, wow, God is so patient with me. Think about God's patience to a nation for generations and generations. That God God is patient for hundreds of years. Think about your own impatience with me right now. (laughs) Think about your own impatience in, in your life. As far as I know, not even Dawn has been patient for more than 100 years. I'm pretty sure that's, I'll confirm that later. But hundreds and hundreds of years, God has sent his messengers, the prophets. God is patient. He is oh so patient. But we should not take his patience for granted because his patience will come to an end. Point B in your notes, listen to God's son. Listen to God's son. Look at verse 13. After the three servants are beaten, the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. I think that phrase is is vastly important for our understanding here. So the the owner of the vineyard has sent servants. They're not listening. And the next strategy is they'll listen to my son. I'll send him. Because he has authority. He has the authority because of who he's related to. My beloved son is also exactly what in Luke 3.22, 
God says in a voice from heaven as Jesus, his son, is baptized. At the baptism of Jesus, Jesus comes out of the water, Holy Spirit appears as a dove, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. The same exact phrase, my beloved son. And I can't help but think about the phrase in Genesis 22 when God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and sacrifice him. In the Greek translation of that Hebrew text, it comes out very, very close to my beloved son, my only son. This is clearly to our way of thinking now that we have centuries to look back on Jesus. And very quickly for the people present, they're going to recognize that this is Jesus as well. And so the beloved son goes. But contrary to what we would expect, the tenants saw him. They said to themselves, verse 14, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Do the tenants really think that if they killed the son, they'd like be written into the will? No. So, so one thought is perhaps they thought, oh, the father has died. And now the son is coming to check on what is now his vineyard. If we kill him, there's no more link and we can take the vineyard for ourselves. Whatever they thought, regardless, they know who this man is as he comes, right? They understand this is the heir. Now, what should have been their response? The response should have been um, obedience. The response should have been uh, to welcome the son lavishly, to show him around the vineyard, to let him taste the best wine. they, They know who it is, and they still go through with their plan, and they threw him out of the vineyard, verse 15, and killed him. That's shocking. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? This is exactly the pattern of what Israel has done to the prophets. In fact, it's what Israel has done to the last prophet that God sent, John the Baptist. Earlier in the book of Luke, John the Baptist, the last of the prophets, was also killed. His message was accepted by many, but rejected by the leadership. In this part of the parable, we are to understand that we are to listen to God's Son in the complete opposite way that these people did. They rejected what God had sent in His Son, and they threw Him out and killed Him. And we also see very clearly to us that Jesus is conscious that He's not just telling the story of ancient Israel. He's bringing the story of Israel into right now, on the Temple Mount, present day, Because I think what we see here is that Jesus is in control, as Pastor Ron has said, Jesus is in control of all that's going on. He he sees the events, he knows the events. He's working all things for his will. And he knows that he's going to be killed. He's already told the disciples at least three times, previously in the book of Luke, when we get to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. And now he tells a story in which the beloved son comes to the children of Israel and is thrown out of the vineyard and killed. I think that this shows that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what's happening. There are a lot of scholars that think that Jesus kind of kind of feels the atmosphere and like, well, it's kind of dangerous here, but he still goes through because he still thinks he has a chance. That's not at all what's happening here. Jesus is Lord of the circumstances that he is in. 
He knows what is happening. He even tells them in a story what's going to happen to him. Well, in the next few verses, we see point C, beware God's judgment. Beware God's judgment. And this is especially in light of having not listened to God's messengers and having not listened to the Son. Beware God's judgment. Jesus says, what's the owner going to do? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now notice, if the people are following along, they've identified the vineyard as Israel. Now Jesus' story says, when the master comes, he's going to destroy those he's given the vineyard to, and now he's going to give it to others. What does that mean? Well, one of the things that this means is that I think the tenants are to be seen now as the religious leaders, the ones who are supposed to cultivate Israel, who were supposed to take care of Israel by teaching Israel, had rather taken things for themselves. That's why Jesus uh, in the temple overturned the tables, right? Because they're trying to profit off of worship. And they have uh, made themselves into a little band of rich people who run kind of all of Israel's religious things. And what I think Jesus is saying is the tenets the leaders who were supposed to be taking care of the vineyard are done. And the vineyard will be given to others. The next part of the verse says, when they heard this, now we don't know who they is, we just need to assume at this point, it's it's the whole crowd listening. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Or some of your versions say, may it never be. This is an expression of surprise at the story and shock. Now some scholars think, that they are saying something like, no, that won't ever happen. And some scholars think they're saying something more like, I can't believe this is going to happen. Whatever the case, they have a visceral reaction to the story. So do you understand this? Like, this is not like when you go to the movie theater and you're like watching the movie and you're eating your popcorn and you come out and someone asks you how it was. Oh, that was good. No, this is the movie that you go to that you're like, No! Like at the screen, right? You're like, they can't hear you. It's just a movie. But you're so taken in by the story that you react, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you don't. It's just a movie. Stop freaking out. Yeah, I know. But it's like, I'm totally into it. Jesus told this story and the listeners got into the story so much that they have a, a reaction that causes them to shout after the story is told. Why would they do that? Because Jesus is a good storyteller, it would probably be one way to say it, but also because they understand what he's saying. They get it, right? So when you tell the the story of the boy who cried wolf to someone who's having a little bit of a trouble telling the truth, you want them at the end of the story to go, that's not just a story, is it? (laughs) That's for me. This is what happened in Jesus' story. The people have heard the story and they say, surely not. Now look at what Jesus does in verse 17. This is... Very infrequently does Jesus do this. He looked directly at them. He looked, the, 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 word, the word here is that, that he, he locked their gaze. He locked his gaze on them. He looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So uh, several things are happening here. The rejection picture, the picture of the vineyard going to others, And so what I want us to see, you've got two blanks there in your notes, is that there's good news for Gentiles. Good news for Gentiles. But I think that's what verse 16 is saying, that the vineyard is going to go to others. 
Jesus is here in the center of Jewishness, in the center of Jerusalem at the temple, and he's saying others are going to receive the vineyard. Others are going to take care of the vineyard from here on out. Good news for Gentiles. They're in the court of the Gentiles. And then secondly, God's judgment centers on Jesus. In verse 17, he's quoting Psalm 118. Well, why is that important? Because the people quoted Psalm 118 just the day before when Jesus entered Jerusalem. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. Uh, That's like verses 25 and 26. And Jesus quotes just a few verses before Psalm 118, 22. Prior to that, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's trying to get them to see, to make the connection with this ancient writing in Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's a few thoughts on what a cornerstone is. Sometimes people think it's like, you ever seen those ancient archways that um, are built over an entrance to a building? Well, back then, right, you had to do it with stones. And so sometimes they, they thought that the cornerstone may be uh, the capstone. There might be a, a synonyms. It might be the, the one right in the center that keeps the arch up. Okay, so that's one option. The other option is um, a corner stone, literally at the corner, that keeps the building up. These are some of the cornerstones um, of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem to this day. Um, many of these stones are uh, dozens of feet long. They weigh uh, in excess of eight tons. In the next picture, you'll see what happened to them. Uh, the archaeologists, when they uncovered these stones, they left some of them like this so that we could see what happened in 70 A.D., when Titus and the Roman legions finally broke into Jerusalem and did exactly what Jesus said they would do and tore down all the stones. Go to the next picture, Jeremiah. They left this, they they took the stones off of this street to show you what happened to the street when the stones fell. This street that, by the way, likely Jesus walked on, um, was smashed to smithereens by all of those stones. So the picture that Jesus is saying, he's trying to get them to, to, to picture these stones in their head, Right? Don't think of like the little stone like you're throwing a rock. Yay. Okay. Think of a stone that like 20 people couldn't pick up. A cornerstone, a huge stone. The stone that the builders rejected, meaning the builders were going to build a building and they rejected this stone because they thought it was defective, has become the cornerstone. So this stone that the builders rejected because they thought it wasn't worthy of being in the building has actually become the cornerstone of the building. Where is Jesus standing when he's telling this story? He's in the temple, which is just up from that picture right there, up on top of the platform. Jesus is standing there, surrounded by beautiful stones. And then he adds his own commentary in verse 18. Look at this. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Jesus is probably talking about Isaiah 8, which talks about a stone on which someone stumbles over and falls and is broken. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And that second half of that verse is super significant because it's very similar to the book of Daniel. Do you remember the, the, the uh, dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had of the statue? Gold, silver, bronze, iron. We, we talk about what those things stand for, the different kingdoms. But sometimes we forget what happens at the end. The end of that dream, what happens? A stone comes and shatters the statue. In fact, it shatters it to pieces, and when the wind blows, the pieces go away. And that stone becomes the kingdom of God. 
I think what Jesus is saying here is Jesus is, man, he's doing some crazy Old Testament work, weaving in all these things from the Old Testament and saying he is the stone that the builders rejected and has or will become the cornerstone. And also judgment centers on him. What he also is doing is when he's talking about this stone and the rejection is in Aramaic and Hebrew, the word for son is Ben. Like Benjamin, Benjamin, Ben is the name for, is the word for son. And Eben is the name for stone. And so in the language that Jesus was speaking, and he's kind of making a little play on words here, saying the Ben is becoming the Eben. The Ben will turn into the Eben. And so the people there are probably getting this. We're not getting it because it's in English and it's, and it's not, in Greek it doesn't even work either. But probably in the Hebrew, the Aramaic that Jesus was speaking, this was a rejected Ben and a rejected Eben becoming the cornerstone. Jesus is referring to the Old Testament and he is saying, I am fulfilling all these seemingly disconnected prophecies. It's all coming together in me. And what's coming together? Judgment is coming together. Who's the judgment on? The judgment is on the leaders of Israel who have failed to take care of the vineyard. So I know this is a lot. Do you see how this story, Jesus tells the story, it's kind of like a, uh, last time on Israel, okay? He, he's just summing up hundreds of years of history, bringing it to the present day, in fact, bringing it to the very place they're standing and applying it to himself. What Jesus is trying to help us understand is that it's all about him, which sounds really arrogant. Jesus is saying, it's all about me. And the judgment comes down to what you do with me. Judgment comes down to what we do with Jesus. What do we do with Jesus? Is he a teacher? Is he a nice guy? Does he have really nice hair and a really clean white robe? Well, who is Jesus? Is he like Marcus Aurelius? He just says really pithy things. Is he, is he just another uh, philosopher like Plato or Socrates? What is going on with this Jesus? Jesus is, is saying, you will be crushed if the cornerstone falls on you. And if you fall on the cornerstone, if you trip over the cornerstone, you will be broken to pieces. This is not merely um, a judgment of, uh, of temporary status. This is a forever type of judgment. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, you missed it, guys. You missed it. This whole thing has been about me. And here I am standing in front of you and I'm fulfilling it. We all have a choice of what to do. In fact, if you're in this room, you now have been presented with greater judgment because you've heard this. You've subjected yourself to something. Maybe you didn't know you were doing this this morning. But you subjected yourself to a choice. Jesus in, in history came to give judgment and to release those who believe in him from judgment. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So whether or not your judgment comes down to, are you in Christ Jesus? Because what Paul says is that there's no condemnation. There's no judgment for you anymore. Why? Because Jesus is about to take the judgment upon himself in a couple more chapters. 
if it's all about Jesus, let me just I'll apply it in this way too, if we think about this. If it's all about Jesus, then it is a massive tragedy that billions of people around our globe have either never heard of him or never heard of him from the Bible. If it is all about Jesus, let's go. If it is all about your 401k and a happy retirement, please don't go. Don't go tell anyone about Jesus because that'll totally ruin your plans. That'll ruin your heaven on earth. You get to enjoy it for 80 years and then it's gone. Wouldn't it be better, wouldn't it be a better investment to invest in something that's going to last forever? That's, that's a much better investment. If it's all about Jesus, then many have never heard and they need to hear. And so we would be wasting our lives to spend it on ourselves. So let's give our time, let's give our talents, and let's give our treasure so that this gospel doesn't just stay here in this nice air-conditioned room, but that it would travel all around the world so that many who have never heard of Jesus will hear of him. The stone is going to fall someday. And to those who have not believed, the stone will crush them. The stone is going to fall, and if you don't believe, it's going to crush you. Don't waste your life. In the second half of the story, we see kind of a transition. Verse 19, point number two in your notes, Jesus avoids a trap by redirecting people's eyes to God. Jesus avoids a trap by redirecting people's eyes to God. Look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. So not only were there some in the crowd going, No! May it never be! Surely not! But there were also those in the crowd who were pounding their fists, who were trying to think of every way they could to get rid of Jesus. Why? For they perceived that he had told this parable not to them, not about them. What's the word? What? against them. <laughs> so listen, this is what Jesus is doing in the story. He's not merely trying to tell them a story to see if they get it. He's telling the story as a weapon. His story is against them. His story is against them. And they understood it. The chief priests and the scribes, they get it. Jesus is telling the story about us. But they, they couldn't do anything because they feared the people. Verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that's the definition of a hypocrite, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. The Jews did not have any authority to um, execute anybody. So what they're looking for is they're looking for a way to get Jesus to trip up in his words so they might take something that he said, tell it to the Romans, and have the Romans take care of this one. They're looking for the words that he has said. Now, if they've been paying attention the last three years, this has not gone well for them. This has not gone well for them. But here they are. They think they're on their home turf because they're in the temple. This is their place. Home field advantage. So they asked him, verse 21, the spies. Teacher, watch the flattery here. We know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. I mean, laying on thick here. Um, Just a quick note. It's in your notes too. Flattery. Don't give it. Don't take it. Flattery. Don't give it. Don't take it. I want to read you three Proverbs to talk about flattery. Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates its victims, 
and a flattering mouth works ruin. Notice it doesn't say who it works ruin on because it's just everyone in the vicinity. Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Solomon says it's better to do the difficult thing and rebuke than to do the easy thing and just flatter that person. And then lastly, Proverbs 29, 5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. A man who flatters his neighbor sets a trap for himself. Some of you are looking for jobs. Isn't that hard sometimes when you're trying to like t- tell a, uh, an, employ- an employer what you're really good at? Um, you know what's also hard? It is, is not flattering in order to get the job. Not to say things that you know will sound good. Maybe you don't even believe them, but you want to say something smooth so that it will clear the way for your job. Maybe you're on the receiving end of the flattery and you find a way to just kind of keep it going. I like the way that feels. Keep coming, keep it coming. Keep the flattery coming. Now that's not good for you either. So let, let's be careful to notice what Jesus does with flattery here. Okay, Jesus doesn't do anything with it. He just ignores it. He ignores the flattery. And if you haven't noticed, he's not very flattering to those around him. He's telling the truth. They flatter, they butter him up, and in verse 22 comes the question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So they're flattering him, they're buttering him up before they drop what they think okay, is a trap that Jesus can't find his way out of. So I just want you to notice, even as we read this, three things about Jesus. There's uh, blanks in your notes. Jesus is calm. Jesus is calm. Everything in our culture right now says, do not respond calmly to controversy. Tweet in all caps. Yell louder. Make more inflammatory statements. Make that person feel small. Use really ridiculous nicknames to make that person feel low. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is calm. That does not mean, though, that Jesus isn't wise. Second thing is, Jesus is wise. He is wise in how he handles this. Now, some of you might say, well, yeah, but he's Jesus. Yes, he is. And if the spirit of Jesus lives in you, then then you ought to use Jesus here as a model for yourself. So Jesus is wise in this confrontation. And the last thing is Jesus is confident. Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus is confident. Part of the reason why I think he's confident is that he knows the Bible. He knows the scripture. You will be so much more confident in your interactions with people if you are saturated in God's word. I mean, if you just marinate in God's word, it'll start to just come out of you. It'll start to affect the way that you speak and that you think. Folks, we, we, don't, need to, we don't need to be confident just in techniques. Now, you should learn some techniques and about apologetics and learn some ways to defend your faith, but, but technique is not what's going to save you in this instance. It's confidence in the word of God. Confidence in the truth of the word of God. So these three things is how Jesus um, answers this. Now this gets really tricky because they asked Jesus a pretty tough question. In the words of Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? What, what are the options here? The options are that if Jesus says, no, it's not lawful, 
Well, now he's playing into the zealots' hands who were all for an uprising, who were all for rebellion. And then he's going to be seen as instigating a rebellion against Rome. And ha-ha, now we can turn him in because he is an anti-government extremist. However, if he says, yes, it is lawful, then he seems to be no different than the ruling class who has kind of like capitulated to Rome and therefore we're seen to care more about Caesar and survival than about following Yahweh and having an independent Israel. So he was going to get blowback from either side depending on how he answered this. And there's a background here because in 6 AD, when Jesus was a little boy, um, Judea and Samaria uh, came under uh, a Roman rule in a different way and there was a poll tax levied against them and the Jews hated this tax because this particular tax um, made them, reminded them all the time that they were subjects. As God's people, they had not, they had still not gotten their own kingdom back and they were under the boot of Rome. In fact, when the tax was levied in AD, 6 AD, a guy named Judas of Galilee rose up and, and there was a brief rebellion. His popular phrase, his, his campaign phrase was no king but God. That's a good phrase to go on if you're Jewish. Uh, but it was quickly crushed. But it kind of lived on. It was kind of like one of those legends that lived on in popular thinking. And so Judas was kind of uh, held up as, as a, a model for the zealots of Jesus' day. Um, and so this kind of was the background to this. It also raised their taxes because there were already God-mandated taxes on the Jews. And so um, economically, it added to their their uh, taxes, which were probably about 30 to 40% of one's income at the time. Politically, it, it just reminded them of Rome and that they were ruled by Rome. And theologically, if they looked at the coin that it was required, on the coin was a graven image of the emperor who was seen to be worshipped as a god. So holding that coin, you were violating a commandment. Have no graven images. So this was fraught with politically, culturally, theologically sensitive debates and materials at the time. And to add to that, it seems from what we know of history that Galileans didn't have to pay it. Where is Jesus from? Galilee. But where is he? He's in Judea where the tax is levied. So it seems like in addition to all those things, Jesus is kind of seen as the outsider because he didn't have to pay the tax. So the leaders go, what do you think about this tax, Jesus, that you don't have to pay? Jesus is thrown into this cauldron. What does he do? Jesus turns the trap around and gives it back to them. Here's his answer, verse 24. Notice the calmness of Jesus. Show me a denarius. Denarius was what you got for a day's wage. Okay, so it was the coin you got after a day's work. It was a Roman coin. Now, by... by by someone pulling this out, whoever pulled it out is already in a tough position because they're holding it. Where are they holding this coin? In the temple. They've brought this picture of Caesar into the temple of God. So already Jesus is kind of won just by having someone produce one. Okay? And he says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. Now, before we, we go further, I want you to see one of these coins. Oh, that's Tiberius, by the way. That's Tiberius Caesar. He was, uh, he was the emperor at the time. He's having some vision problems. Okay. Oh, this is hard to see. 
Okay, this is a denarius from the time of Jesus. Um, and it has Tiberius on the front. Here's a close-up. There's Tiberius on the left. And on the back of the coin, I don't know if it's, ha- that's tails, I guess. Um, on that is, a, is a, probably a female picture of a high priestess. Uh, but what it, it said on the coin is Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The other said something like chief priest. In essence, what it's saying is, here's a divine son of God with access to the gods. That's what the coin is saying. Now, the coin is a reminder. Now, our, our coins don't do this, right? Like, our coins are historical figures, right? With historical, like, buildings and stuff and, like, states on them and kind of fun stuff. But their coins were like propaganda of the day. Like, when you looked at your money, you saw your ruler. When you looked at your money, you saw the, the boot that was on your neck. One scholar said the denarius itself just oozes idolatry because of what it said. So this coin has been pulled out. Jesus asks what's on it. Caesar's on it. And so he says, in a wise, calm, and confident way, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Short sentence. Totally diffuses the situation. Look at, look at verse 26 says, And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. It's like they were like, ooh, that's a good one. That's a, ooh, man, that's a really good one, right? That's like, well, they, could, they, couldn't, they couldn't do anything about it. It was such a beautiful, beautifully crafted answer. They couldn't respond. They were silenced by it. Their attempt to trap Jesus traps them. But there's nothing they can do with it. Now, by the way, that's not like Jesus doing a mic drop, right? He's not like, what? You know, Jesus, Jesus doesn't do that, right? Why? By the way, why does Jesus not do that? Because Jesus isn't competing against anything here. Jesus is pleading with these people to believe in him. So he's not doing it in, in the sense that we think of. It's not a rap battle, okay? This is Jesus pleading with his own people to believe in him. So, on the temple complex... In a place where, by the way, I forgot to mention this, the coin, because it had Caesar's image on it, you weren't supposed to take it into the bathroom with you because you didn't want to defile it, and you couldn't take it into a brothel if you were visiting a brothel, okay? But they brought it on the temple mount where God is worshipped in his holy place. See, this, this is just a, an incredible thing. Um, what, the NIV says, by the way, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Uh, Justin Martyr, who died in 165 AD, was known for, he's like the first apologist, or second. And he wrote, uh, he wrote to Roman emperors defending Christianity. He said this about um, the worship of God. We worship only God, but in other things we joyfully obey you. We acknowledge you as the kings and rulers of men. We also pray that you may have a good judgment besides royal power. If you do not listen to us, although we beg you and clearly explain our position, it will by no means harm us. We believe, rather we are sure, that everyone will pay the penalty of his misdeeds in the everlasting fire. To the emperor. He's like, emperor, we, we, we pray for you, we respect you, but you're going to go to hell if you don't believe what we believe. Wow, this guy's pretty bold, right? And this is, this is exactly what we do here. The tax question is really secondary to the real question of who owns everything and who owns me. Jesus helps us understand here in just a simple phrase that we obey the laws of the lands and our leaders, but we must see that all of God's creation is his, and so we give all of us and all of our stuff back to him. 
Just as Caesar's image was stamped on the coins, God's image is stamped on us. So we are his, just like the denarius is Caesar's. Since we belong to God, body and soul, then we can rightly submit to governmental authorities. Just as Jesus does by paying taxes. When we serve them, we understand we are ultimately serving God. Country is important. Patriotism is good. But God is ultimate. So when our leaders demand things of us that violate our obedience to God, we disobey, notice, civilly. We disobey and we accept the consequences that come with our disobedience. Think, for example, of Martin Luther King Jr., okay? He goes to jail because he knows that's the, that's the consequence for his crime. Peter said we must obey God rather than man in Acts 5.29. So, Roman citizens and subjects said that Caesar is Lord at the time. That was a, that was a common phrase, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. But Christians said Jesus is Lord. So Caesar's lordship is, is fine because God's put him there. He's in, he's in charge. But it's only, it's only secondary to God's ultimate authority. God will deal with Caesars and pharaohs and kings and czars and prime ministers and presidents who rule wickedly. Our role is to boldly and counterculturally obey our government and pay our taxes. If you run a business, you need to be scrupulous with your taxes so that you can obey what Jesus says here, to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But, but, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That is our role. We give God our whole lives. You can't just give God Sunday. You think God's tricked? Like, you come today and you're like, oh, I'm good with God now. I came on Sunday. And he's like, wow, look at that person. I'm really proud of them for going to church on Sunday. In a country like this? No. God's not impressed with you coming to church. Be careful that you're not a hypocrite. Rather, learn that what the second phrase of what Jesus said Give to God the things that are God's. What are you giving to God that is His? Now, the answer should be me. Right? Did you catch that in Romans 12, 1? A living sacrifice? That's an oxymoron. Sacrifices don't live. You slit their throats, put the blood on the ground, and burn up the body. No one survives that. So what is Paul saying? He's saying live on the altar. Just like live on the altar. You're a constant living sacrifice. We give God all of us. We give him our job. We give him our money. We give him our lives. And that's in the big things and in the little things. So it matters what you wear. It matters what you buy. It matters how you talk. It matters what you listen to. It matters what you watch. It matters what you drive. Why? Because you're to give back to God the things that are God's. Paul told the Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? It's a rhetorical question. They're not supposed to be like, uh, well, the, the picture of that question is, you didn't get anything by your, on your own. God gave you all that you have. So we see here, Jesus is saying, yes, pay taxes. Obey your leaders. But if in doing that, you ignore God, then you've missed the whole thing. You've missed the whole thing. Now what's going to happen in the, in the passages that, that are to come in the next few weeks is that 
the next, the next guys kind of come up and be like, ha, ah, you guys didn't get a good question on Jesus, but we're going to trick Jesus. Like, ah, oh, we didn't trick you. And the next guy, oh, we're going to trick Jesus. They keep trying to do this and they keep failing because they're concerned about holding on to power that they have, not concerned with truth. They're not concerned with what Jesus is going to do for them on the cross that they worked so hard to get him on. So the, 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 the application is like, when I, when I leave this place, how do I live the rest of the week for God? Because it's really easy to live for God in church, right? Sing songs, raise hands, pray, be quiet, dress kind of nice-ish. Okay, like, it's really easy to do that kind of stuff. But it's really hard when your employer is a jerk. And it's really hard to, when you have opportunities to cheat in school. So how are you going to live all 168 hours of your week for God? That is the question to take away. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. Father, thank you for this reminder. Thank you for what you've taught us this morning. Lord, help us to take this into consideration. Help us to reevaluate our lives. If someone were to look at our, our spending, our checkbook, someone were to look at... Um, our watch list, if someone were to um, look at our thoughts, or would they see us being careful to give you glory? Or would they see us working to increase our comforts? Father, may we be the kind of people that live in this country and in any country that we live in as subjects to the rulers that you have placed in authority May we be respectful of the authorities and may we remind those authorities that their authority comes from God. Bless our time together now uh, and our potluck in Jesus' name. Amen.